3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm looking at my phone to get the correct date today. It is the 12th of October. <laughs> it was 29th last week. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's that flies when you're having fun. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, Priya. Morning, Priya. Um, so we've got a packed show today. Maybe we'll just jump straight into the rundown. Leela, you want to kick it yeah, off? Yeah. So first up this morning, we'll be learning more about building unity against fascism. A four-session study circle co-hosted by Radical Woman and Freedom Socialist Party in Reservoir. Immersed in the daily fight against racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-trans bigotry and labour exploitation, Radical Woman believes in multi-issue organising around the needs of the most marginalised. The Freedom Socialist Party is a feminist working class organisation fighting for an end to all capitalist exploitation and oppression. Awesome. Thanks, Leela. And after that, we are very privileged to be joined by Mohib Nabulsi, who's a Palestinian writer, editor, filmmaker and activist living in exile on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And Mohib is going to join us to talk about the fight for Palestinian liberation and freedom and justice. And so we're really, um, really honored to have this chat Um Listeners may be aware there was a snap action for Palestine uh, last Tuesday, um, so earlier this week on Tuesday at 6 p.m. outside the State Library that gathered uh, hundreds of people. And coming up this Sunday at 12 p.m. outside the State Library, there will be another rally for Palestine. If you were there on Tuesday, bring 10 people. If you weren't, bring 10 people anyway. Um, And after that, we're going to hear a... um, conversation I had earlier this week with housing justice campaigner Jesse Noakes to discuss the campaign to stop the Western Australian government's Department of Communities from evicting Aboriginal families from public housing and into homelessness. Now, while public housing is frequently referred to as a benchmark for secure rental tenancy in Australia, the Stop Evicting Families campaign highlights how state and territory governments can choose to end public housing tenancies with no reason, process for challenge or sufficient notice to tenants. Spike. Oh, sorry. Uh, and we'll also be having a phone conversation with the founder of the Trashurama Agogo Australian Short Film Festival, Dick Dale. Trashurama Agogo is a film fe- f- film festival caters to the low budget, no budget end of the movie market, focusing on genre, horror, sci-fi and films under 15 minutes in length and is being held at the Nova Cinema this weekend. And Dick is in Nam, Melbourne to host the festival and screen screen his feature, Rib Spreader. We'll be talking to Dick about um, the video nasty genre, <coughs> excuse me, Trasher, the Trasher Armour Go-Go Film Festival and his feature, Rib Spreader. Oh, and also... <laughs> We'll, uh, Blockade Australia, um, yeah, we, I had a conversation with an activist from Blockade Australia, but, you know, as you know, 
Blockade Australia is an organising network established in response to the destruction of the ecosystems that support all human and non-human life. And the network helps build a political movement that can physically resist Australia's planet-destroying operations with disruptive and targeted action that shuts down the everyday functioning of this machine. Today we'll hear the first instalment of a three-part conversation with James, who's an activist from Blockade. Um, we will discuss Blockade's mission, the reasons he got involved with the organisation, the role of commitment to social and environmental and environmental justice plays in Blockade's work and the importance of direct action. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to the show, so stay tuned for the next hour and a half here on 3CR 855 AM. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, uh, the 12th of October. Um, Palestinians in Gaza are facing an imminent humanitarian catastrophe due to Israel's blockade, which means people are without access to water, food, power and communications. The health ministry in the Gaza Strip reported yesterday that Israeli attacks have killed 1,055 Palestinians and wounded more than 5,000 people this week alone. 60% of those injured are women and children. All hospital beds in the Gaza Strip are now full at capacity, according to Palestine's Ministry of Health, and hospitals are running out of blood supply. The Israeli defense minister has pledged to launch a ground offensive in Gaza following air raids by dozens of Israeli fighter jets this week that caused destruction and damage to more than 20,000 residential units, 10 health facilities and 48 schools in Gaza City. Palestinian news agency Wafa reported that Israeli forces dropped a white phosphorus bomb on neighborhood in Gaza earlier this week which along with the blockade is one of a number of factors causing human rights monitors to point to war crimes being committed by Israel against Palestinian civilians. As part of the fighting, Israel have also exchanged fire with Lebanon on its northern border and in Syrian territory, further raising fears that the violence could lead to a wider war. Also in headlines, people in western Afghanistan were still digging for the bodies of their loved ones amongst rubble from a massive earthquake that occurred last Saturday when a second highly destructive earthquake struck yesterday. Both earthquakes were 6.3 magnitude and struck Herat province, causing widespread destruction of houses and the deaths of more than a thousand people, with that number expected to rise. Aid agencies say there is urgent need for blankets, food and other basic supplies and fear that blocked road access, broken communication lines, lack of health service capacity and widespread food insecurity in Afghanistan will mean needs in the coming winter months become desperate. In other news this week, with a warning this headline contains a mention of First Nations person who has died, the inquest into the death of Kuman J. Walker will resume later this month. And a former police officer, Zachary Rolfe, who shot and killed Mr Walker while on duty in the remote community of Yindamu, has called for the inquest coroner to step down due to alleged bias. 
Rolf was acquitted of a murder in of murder in a high profile trial last year. Northern, Terri- Northern Territory Coroner Elizabeth Armitage has been probing the, the death in the inquest since last September. The inquest has been repeatedly disrupted by legal fights from Rolf's lawyers about whether Rolf has a legal right to refuse to provide evidence to the coroner. The coroner will deliver a ruling on the submission by the end of the week. And finally in headlines, scientists and environmental groups have been left bitterly disappointed by the federal court's decision to dismiss two landmark climate cases against the federal environment minister and two coal mining companies this week and are calling for urgent reforms to Australia's environment laws. The Living Wonders climate cases argued the minister must include an assessment of how greenhouse gases emitted by 19 mining projects would affect thousands of protected plants, animals and places in Australia. Unless appealed, yesterday's judgment effectively clears the way for the minister to ignore climate change in her risk assessment of all new coal and gas projects on her desk, of which there are currently 25. The Environment Council of Central Queensland, who brought the case to court, is today considering all legal options, including full federal court appeals and urgent court injunctions. They say the International Energy Agency advice is unequivocal. Quote, there can be no new investments in oil, gas and coal from now, because the development of new oil and gas fields is incompatible with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, end quote. Despite this, the federal court has this week decided that our existing federal environment laws do not require consideration of emissions from proposed fossil fuel projects. These have been the news headlines uh, for Thursday the 12th of October, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Annika Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. In our next conversation, we will be hearing more about Building Unity Against Fascism, a four-session study circle co-hosted by Radical Woman and Freedom Socialist Party in Reservoir. 
immersed in the daily fight against racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-trans bigotry and labour exploitation, Radical Woman believes in multi-issue organising around the needs of the most marginalised. The Freedom Socialist Party is a feminist working-class organisation fighting for an end to all capitalist exploitation and oppression. Good morning, Debbie, and welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Good morning, Leela. Good thank morning, you. thank you. So much for joining us bright and early. Um, Pleasure. First up, I wanted to ask about some of the context behind this study circle. So what motivated this project and what are some of its goals? Yes, well, um, as listeners are um, probably fully aware that fascists are in the open and very combative, um, they resurfaced about eight years ago targeting Muslims and now they're aggressively going after trans and queer people, First Nations, Jews, immigrants, the left, and so on, especially since last December in Australia and in Melbourne, um, culminating recently in uh, the attack on Cafe Gummo in Thornbury and threat that very threatening video to Lydia, Lydia Thorpe. So, um, you know, we've got the economic conditions now, the cost of living crisis that's breeding this this violent scapegoating and um so what we're trying to do with the study group is address this and look at what's the relationship between fascist gangs that we're seeing and fascism itself and um to be clear on what fascism is what it isn't um what's behind it and why we need to stop the fascists organizing now while they're small, um, to look at how we build a united front, which is pretty vital right now, and um, just look to history to know all of this a lot better, what's happening now and what we should be doing. Mm, Yeah, so speaking to that um, idea of looking to history, I'm curious to know a bit more about the actual text building Mm. unity against fascism that the study circle is based around. Can you tell us what this text focuses on and the relevance of these writings when reflecting on our local and contemporary manifestations of fascism? Yes, um, the text is called Building Unity Against Fascism and it's a collection of Marxist writings um, uh, and they're, they're Marxists who are in the thick of the rise of fascism from the 1920s to the 1970s. So people like Clara Zetkin in Germany, Ted Grant in Great Britain, James P. Cannon in the United States. And um, these were not only analysts, but they were organizers against fascism. Um, So in this book, uh, we get to learn about the economic and social conditions that existed in those periods. Um, we see who were behind this force that's just so extreme, extreme enough to break the working class's capacity to organize and resist. I mean, we are talking about concentration camps and gas chambers. Um, why did the working class, particularly the trade unions and the left, fail to stop fascism in Germany and Italy is something that we'll get to learn and what what are lessons there for for us to take today so that's pretty much it's a it's a little book but it's packed with 
all of this really important um, analysis and information. Yeah, um, it sounds like we've got a lot to learn from those histories, and it's really good to hear that you're getting them out there. Now, next, I wanted to move on to what a study session might actually look like. Um, Can I drop in if I haven't read the text? And what options do you have for folks who can't make it in person? Right. Well, um, now, first of all, yes, you can definitely drop in not having read the text. Um, But uh, first of all, it's in person, but it's also online. Um, we have a study guide which um, sets out the theme of each of the six sessions and the readings. Um, we have people who have volunteered to lead each session, and so um, what they do is they come up with questions so that um, the rest of us can prepare for a good discussion um, and everybody can participate. If you drop in, that's fine, absolutely, and participate. And um, anybody dropping in would, I'm sure, definitely want to grab the book and the study guide and questions for the, you know, future sessions. Um, And, again, people who cannot attend in person can just uh, join online, and we've got, you know, the registration links for doing that. So it's there for to make it easy accessible um, for everybody who wants to be part of it. Yeah, amazing. And that's um, hosted at Solidarity Salon in Reservoir. So just Mm -hmm. to follow that up, I was wondering if there are any public transport options to actually get there that you know of. For sure, yes. Okay, so Solidarity Salon is at 113 Spring Street in Reservoir, and we're about a minute walk from Regent um, Station, train station, so uh, that would be the, you know, the most accessible. There are buses that also um, operate around that area. Um, and for people who are driving, there's no parking problem whatsoever. Oh, amazing. Thank you. So now I wanted to move on to some of your reflections about your first session. Congratulations. That was on October 4th. Um, mm-hmm. I thought you could speak to uh, what the following sessions will kind of contain, how many of them are there, and, yeah, do you have any reflections on that first gathering? Um, Yes. No, that first gathering was really great because um, people, this was a matter of of dropping in like your question before, Um, and so it was like an introductory uh, session, and we, um, you know, we talked about what our perceptions were of fascism, and people around the table, and including Zoom being around the table, are... Oops, I think we might have Uh-oh. lost Debbie there. Debbie, are you there? <laughs> we'll just check if Debbie comes back. Um, yep, give us one minute, folks. I feel like Debbie was just about to say something really interesting, so we'll try and get them back on the line. All right. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back. 
Victorian Energy Fact Sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855 AM, and we will resume our conversation with Debbie. We're fine. (laughs) So you were just updating us on what went on in that first session of the study circle. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I have no idea where I dropped out, but basically just to say that, um, uh, we had, it was really great to have people who have been involved in anti-fascist organizing for a long time for people who have been so just recently and people who are new to it. So all sorts of perceptions were, were um, you know, coming out, which was fantastic. We looked at, um, you know, the Australian scene experiences with um, uh, fighting fascism over the past couple of decades. We talked about... Faulkner, how um, in 1997-98, um, Nazis were successfully kicked out of that um, uh, of Faulkner uh, by community organizing. So mm. that was a really good example, a contemporary example to be looking at and learning from. Um, so the the next session, session number two, is going to be um, next Wednesday, October 18th. Now, these sessions are at 7 o'clock, and anybody coming in person, come for dinner at 630 because um, it's just nice to be able to have a good meal and chat beforehand. And then it's alternate uh, fortnights uh, through December 13th. So um, it's six sessions in all. Um, anybody wanting to know more about that can either check the Facebooks of uh, Radical Women Australia or Freedom Socialist Party Australia. It's all there. Or they could email Radical Women. Um, that's rw.aus at radicalwomen.org. And um, we're happy to send out any kind of information with a study guide and so on. Pop into Solidarity Salon, get the book or get it mailed. Um, it's all all there to make it easy. Thank you so much. And we'll also include all of those things um, in our uh, podcast. Um, we'll link everything so you can uh, click on those and find out how to get there and how to sign up. Um, just in our final question, would do you have any future pro- projects in the works? And how can listeners support the cause or maybe even do some mm-hmm. self-directed anti-fascist learning? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, if, just on the question of anti-fascist uh, work, um, uh, anybody can be working with us on, um, uh, we're working on building a defense at the community level because, as I mentioned, there was Cafe Gummo and um, the threat on Lydia Thorpe and so on. So um, a defense at that level. Uh, continue to be part of confronting fascists wherever they show up. Work toward building a united front um, that brings in all targets of fascists to be joining together. So on, on that, uh, just in that area, but also related areas, um, where both the organizations are very active in stopping First Nations deaths in custody, 
um, defending LGBTIQA plus uh, people from far right and fascist assaults and just generally for liberation. Um, we work in our unions, unionists out there. Um, if we're in the same unions, to work on democratizing our unions and making them men- member-controlled um, a fighting force for, for workers' rights, because that's all part and related to um, fighting fascism. And in terms of resources for, um, you know, anti-fascist study, uh, again, get our study guide. Um, but also there's lots of great resources on um, the websites of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. So RadicalWomen.org or Socialism.com. Thank you so much, Debbie. Um, We really appreciate your time this morning and I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, thank you very much, Shola, and uh, it was great talking to you. Hope to see more people. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Yeah, so get down there, people. Building Unity Against Fascism, which is held in Reservoir. It is a six-session study circle co-hosted by Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party in Reservoir, and we just spoke to Debbie about that. Um, You're listening to 3CR. It's 7.29. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yeah, Na Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And now we are joined by Muhib Nabulsi, who is a Palestinian writer, editor, filmmaker and activist living in exile on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And they join us today to speak about the fight for Palestinian liberation and solidarity. And it is an immense gratitude that they have made time to come on the show today. Um, but welcome, Mahib. Hi, how are you going? I'm good. Thanks thank- so much. No, of course, thank you. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about who you are, Mahib? Yeah. Um, before, I, before I do, um, I start by acknowledging that I'm on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Um, as anyone who attended the SNAP rally the other night would have heard, um, Kieran from the Black People's Union gave an amazing speech and 
just reasserting how um, inherently linked the struggles of First Nations people here and um, the struggle of Palestinians is. Um, and yeah, so I'm a Palestinian in exile, and uh, I've been uh, an activist for many years, um, engaged in a number of different um, actions, including the MQFF boycott in 2021, um, other boycott campaigns. Um, yeah. Other than that, I write about Palestine, um, and I'm a filmmaker and editor as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think we just wanted to get uh, to maybe know you a little bit more before I ask some of the questions about what's been happening in Palestine. Um, and particularly with Gaza, that continues to be the world's largest open-air prison where everything is controlled by Israel, whether there is aid, whether there is food, water, electricity, there's ongoing indefinite detention, checkpoints, surveillance. You know, when people describe Gaza as an open-air prison, what does this actually look like every day for Palestinians? Um, I mean, some of it is there in your question, in a way, given the, the so-called Israel, the colonial occupier, controls all aid, food, water, electricity, etc. Um, it's one of the most densely populated areas in the world and has been under a land, air and sea blockade um, since 2007, um, which is when Isra- so-called Israel removed all um, the settlements from Gaza so they could claim they were working towards peace. Um, when in fact, of course, as history has proven, it just meant that they could isolate Gaza further um, and control everything that goes in and out. Um, add to that, add to the lack of food, clean water, medical supplies due to Israeli everyday colonial violence, add to that the bombing campaigns that the colonizer has um has done every every few years, basically. Um, for example, in 2014, the ratios of the um, damage done to so-called Israel and Gaza are just outrageous. The number of homes damaged or destroyed in Gaza was 18,000. In Israel, it was one. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the scale and the ongoing occupied uh, and settled colonial violence is never-ending and, and devastating and you know I people can see that there is you know an increase in settled colonial violence in the last 10 months particularly in the last you know week even days hours but I think I wanted to know maybe a little bit more about you know what has really changed in the past few weeks or even days um, but there's been an increase in the escalation in violence forever, but particularly in the last, like, 10 months or so. In the last 10 months or so, yeah. I mean, I think since the unity intifada um, in 2021, um, so-called Israel has felt their reputation slipping around the world. They've felt their, but mostly felt their hold on and control of Palestinians and Palestine as unstable. I mean, the Palestinian resistance just 
keeps rising from whatever conditions Palestinians are put under by the colonial state. Um, and I think, and I mean, it's 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 so hard to keep up. The the violence escalates just continuously. Yeah. Um, and in in the last ten months or the last year years. Um, there's been a, a huge increase in Israeli settler violence against Palestinians all over Palestine, whether we're talking um, outside Gaza, um, in the so-called West Bank, in 48 Palestine, so-called Israel. Um, it doesn't matter where. Um, Israeli settlers who are armed to the teeth have been committing pogroms against Palestinians, and yeah, I don't really know what that is to say, how I could possibly encapsulate the escalation of violence in Palestine that has been occurring ever since yeah. the Israeli colonizer first stepped foot on our land. Um, but what's changed in the past few weeks, or since, let's say, Saturday, is that so-called Israel is feeling for the first time in a long time, the number of casualties between Palestine and so-called Israel are kind of on a par at the moment. Um, and that's something the colonizer hasn't felt for a long time. And you see that what their reaction to that is. They're feeling just some tiny semblance of what has been what Palestinians feel and have felt every day for 75 plus years. And what's their response? Their response is to call for a complete genocide. And with then, of course, come in the US and all their lackeys, so called Australia included, so called Canada, who are now supporting this genocide. I mean, it's not really anything surprising. Settler colonies will always support other settler colonies. They're all fascist colonial nation states. Um, so there's nothing surprising here. And in fact, it's, yeah, in, in terms of where to channel, you know, where, well, personally, where I'm channeling my energies, it's no longer in trying to appeal to any, to colonizers, white supremacists. They're not going to, they're not going to change their minds. They see us, it's quite clear as, as animals, we're like, as, as all colonized people are, right? You could take an example from South Africa under apartheid there, uh, from colonized Algeria, from here in so-called Australia. The depiction of colonized peoples is always the same. They're always recurring, recurring characterizations, dehumanization. Um, it's it's textbook. Um, yeah. And yeah, sorry, I'm rambling about no, that. No, 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 not not even in the slightest. There's so much to say. Of course, it's you know difficult to encapsulate into a, like a short live radio interview. Um, yeah, I I think what I also am seeing, and that you know you've mentioned the playbook, the playbook that settler colonial states will continue to use, um, and media is a huge part in that. And I get to see like 
you know, people are calling this a conflict as if it's a, a small little conflict. And it, it really shows like who people believe is worthy of being a civilian versus a casualty. There are deliberate choices to spread misinformation, frame the oppressors as the victims. And there's also ongoing targeted violence towards media outlets and Palestinian journalists. I mean, same question as before, like it's really hard to encapsulate this into a short answer but how do you see media playing a role in how you know this you know complete human rights violation and ongoing war crimes are being viewed Mm. um i mean what is generally referred to as the media being kind of media that has um distribution in line with the borders of any given nation state perhaps beyond but um for example, like any kind of national media in any settler state is inherently um, oppressive and in line with that nation state and all their fascist policies as a settler state. So it doesn't matter if it's the ABC, if it's more like if it's Channel 9, 10, doesn't matter if it's commercial, if it's public, um, all of them are employ a kind of state-sanctioned objectivity that is, you know, that just conceals violence everywhere it goes, every time it's used. Um, and, yeah, you could, if you, if you wanted to do a close reading of any of this, you will, yeah, notice the kinds of things that you've, um, you mentioned in your question, like civilian versus casualty, or you'll, you'll notice that in reports from um, so-called Israel's bombing campaigns against the people of Gaza, you'll notice that it says people have been killed. So it can remain ambiguous to the, so they can assert this ambiguity to the reader as to whether, you know, these people are civilians or um, military. But even this, uh, even this notion of, uh, of, um, of civilian in this context, it's like, yeah, well, People of Gaza, Palestinians, are never considered civilians. We're all terrorists, essentially. But, and you know, they'll keep they'll keep emphasizing again and again and again. All the media doesn't matter who you're looking at, unless it's like, unless it's radical, um, you know, anti-colonial media. Um, it'll just keep emphasizing, oh, Hamas has killed civilians. I mean, like, and I'm I'm. You know, I, I know you're not going to ask me <laughs> such questions. Um, um, and I know actually a bit about 3CR's long um, history of solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. Um, but, like, those kinds of questions, like, what is a civilian in this, in this context, in, in, in the context of Israel? Someone who has served in it. I mean, they have a military conscription, and there are a number of, of groups of ex-Israeli um, military soldiers who, you know, kind of try to communicate to the world what it is they were told, commanded to do as soldiers. Now, if everyone has served in the Israeli military, the notion of what is and isn't a civilian, given that they have probably committed, like, atrocities against Palestinians. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it makes no sense. But also, they'll keep, 
the media will continue to ask like for Palestinians to denounce violence, and it's it's ridiculous. Like it's it's perverse um, to demand that uh, a people who have been intentionally deprived and dehumanized denounce the violence. Um, it, it makes absolutely no sense, yep. given all of the violence that's perpetrated against us every day. Yep, there is violence perpetrated against Palestinians every single day. And I think it feels difficult, I think, for us at 3CR or, you know, people who are looking at this is that there seems to be no other... How can, it, it seems impossible to interpret it any other way besides it's a settler colonial state that is occupying uh, a land that doesn't belong to them um, and the whole world is rallying against a some sort of, you know, settler colonial fascist superpower. Um and it feels, you know, disgusting to to watch. And I think for the last question, um, I know there's so much more to say about this and we could talk for the entire hour, but, um, you know, we obviously encourage people to show up to the rallies um, that's coming up on Sunday and all across so-called Australia. Um, if you could lead us off with, like, what you really wish people would know or think about when it comes to Palestine and the current violence that is being perpetrated by so-called Israel, you know, what comes to your mind? Um, I am, hmm, I'm kind of, I, like, I don't, I don't know what it is I wish people knew, um, because I feel like all the information is there yeah. for people. The only the thing I wish people would do is, you know, some people are so deeply white supremacy. White supremacy is so deeply rooted in some people's psyches that you know they're not going to change their mind. They're not going to start supporting indigenous people in Palestine here or anywhere else. But I'm willing to accept that perhaps. Some people just haven't been challenged properly on the issue. And for those people, if you know those people, then tell them and don't stop telling them until they understand and until they're willing to do something about it. Um, Particularly in communities, um, communities of color, there's one one of the most disturbing things I've seen on um, like on the on Twitter and stuff is the support, the huge amount of support from um, uh, basically Zionist Indians um, in yeah, which is something I just haven't seen much before. Obviously, fascists have been kind of have been increasingly mobilized in India in the last however long. Yep. Um, but if you're part of communities where, like, there's that kind of, you know, communities of color that aren't in solidarity with Palestine, then that needs to change. Absolutely. Um, in terms of what people can do, um, yeah, like you said, obviously come to the rally uh, this Sunday at midday outside the State Library um, and any and every subsequent rally. Yeah. Um, and there's also... I'm not sure if people know. Well, actually, here's one thing I wish people um, knew: uh, is that the university RMIT has a partnership with the weapons company, Israeli weapons company Elbit System, which produces many of the weapons 
used, which produces yeah, many weapons used by so-called Israel in their colonial violence against indigenous Palestinians. Um, and this is something supported by the Victorian state government with a huge, I can't remember the figure, hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. um, initiative. Um, and there's a protest outside RMIT on the corner of Swanson and Latrobe um, every Wednesday, 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. And with things like this, don't ask, is this really effective? I'm Palestinian and I'm telling you that it is. Yeah. Um, just come and be there. And um, also, I think, you know, as I said at the, um, at the start of this interview, um, the struggles of First Nations people here and Palestinians are inherently linked and always will be um, until these settler states crumble. Um, And with that in mind, um, joining organizations like the Black People's Union, um, which um, you can find information about at blackpeoplesunion.org, Yep, but he, it, we're getting, it, I'm so sorry. Um, we've just yeah. run out of time for our interview. Um, but you, we are, the Black People's Union, the rallies, um, yeah, that's, you know, that's our that's mind, we will definitely put it in the show notes. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, but thank you so much for your time, your your insight. And, and it, there's such immense gratitude that you've come on the show today from all of us here at, at 3CR and our listeners. And, you know, thank you for making that time. Um, We really sincerely appreciate it. No worries. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mahib. And that was uh, Mahib Nabulsi, who is a Palestinian writer, editor, filmmaker and activist living in exile on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. He joins us today to speak about the fight of Palestinian liberation and solidarity. And I think we might jump into our next segment now as well. Um, So... Uh, we're going to go to an interview that I did earlier this week with housing justice campaigner Jesse Noakes uh, to discuss the campaign to stop the Western Australian government's Department of Communities from evicting Aboriginal families from public housing and into homelessness. Now, while public housing is frequently referred to as the benchmark for secure rental tenancy in Australia, the Stop Evicting Families campaign has highlighted how state and territory governments can choose to end public housing tenancies for no reason uh, and with no process for challenge or sufficient notice to tenants. So this is that chat with Jesse. Housing is a big issue. Um, it's currently uh, preoccupying the, the national imagination, um, especially considering the increasing uh, squeeze of the cost of living crisis, uh, escalating concerns about housing affordability. And um, one of the reasons that people involved in housing research and activism emphasize the importance of governments providing public housing is because it's generally considered to be the most secure type of tenure that non-owners can access. However, the experiences of the Aboriginal families that you work alongside in the campaign to stop evicting families has shown that long-term tenure is actually far from a guarantee in public housing. And what you have worked alongside families to amplify is the fact that racial surveillance and control continue to play an insidious role in the way that Aboriginal families in public housing are being targeted by WA's Department of Communities. So to start with, I was hoping you could give our listeners a bit of context about the operation of fixed term tenancies and no grounds evictions from public housing in Western Australia and how that impacts upon Aboriginal families. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's, that's a great and um, important question. Um, 
So for a little background about myself, I've been um, a housing advocate in WA for about a decade, give or take. And for a number of years, I've worked with families who are going through the courts in Western Australia, um, which is how all tenancies are terminated in WA is through the magistrate's court, through what's called a Form 12 application process for termination of the tenancy and vacant possession to be given, which is a fancy kind of sanitised way of saying evicted, um, often into homelessness. And so with um, with the work I do with First Nations families, the stumbling block we often run up against um, at a fairly early stage is that the Department of Communities in Western Australia continues to use fixed-term tenancies um, as a fairly easy way of both controlling the sort of the, the tenancies and the, um, the living conditions of First Nations families, but also the way the tenancies operate provides the government with the ability to terminate them at the stroke of a pen. So the first um, eviction hearing that I ever appeared in the magistrate's court for um, several years ago was for an elderly First Nations man who was living alone um, in a public housing property in Perth's north, and he was issued with a tenancy termination at the end of his fixed-term tenancy. We appeared in front of the magistrate, who actually was extremely sympathetic to the point that the Department of Communities representative accused the magistrate of bias in court, which is a fairly serious thing to do in a legal setting. Um, regardless of that fact and of the fact that the magistrate clearly wanted to provide an opportunity to this um, elderly Noongar man to defend himself and to kind of to hear the complaints from the department and allow allow the tenant a chance to respond to them. The legislation permits the department simply to inform the court they wish to terminate the tenancy to ensure that the paperwork's all in order and then to evict the um, the tenants without any legal defence available to them at all. Um, it's effectively a no grounds termination, um, the sort of which some other states have recently sort of moved to remove from their legislation or at least to limit the operations of. Um, what I think is shocking for many people and is little realised is that it's not just sort of private real estate agencies and landlords that are using these provisions. It's the government, it's the Department of Communities who also in Western Australia has provision for child protection and for women and families and for domestic violence. Um, and the way that these tenancies operate is to basically remove any security of tenure for these families, many of them highly vulnerable, of course, um, and to allow the department, the government, to kick them onto the streets kind of at a moment's notice with, with no defence or opportunity for a court to kind of protest the evidence. It's simply an administrative decision that the government makes and the families are made homeless um, with as little as 30 days' notice. Now, what makes this even more acute and reprehensible in our view is the fact that the government uses these this form of tenancies disproportionately with First Nations families. So evidence that was presented in the federal court and also released via WA Parliament shows that 58% of these fixed-term tenancies are issued to First Nations families and similarly that 58% of the evictions caused by these tenancies are First Nations families in a context where only 3% of the population in WA is Aboriginal and they make up some 22% of overall public housing tenancies. So there's sort of a 200 to 300% over-representation um, of First Nations families in, in, these, in these specific types of tenancies. And the upshot of this is that every year hundreds of children um, are evicted from public housing onto the streets in WA and that more than half of them are First Nations, more than 50% of the overall evictions from public housing every year in WA year on year 
uh, of Aboriginal families, despite, again, making up less than a quarter of the overall tenancies. And again, numbers released through Parliament earlier this year showed that since the WA Labor government took office in 2017, more than 3,000 kids have been made homeless as a result of this eviction policy. Um, and that is basically the central premise of an ongoing racial discrimination complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission. That will be heard at conciliation this Thursday for the first time, um, a meeting between the lead claimant in that case, a First Nations family facing eviction from a public housing property in Perth, and their legal team, um, which is to say solicitors from a community legal centre supported by a pro bono team from Gilbert and Tobin, um, meeting with the Department of Communities in the Human Rights Commission to try and hash out some sort of um, resolution to not just the issue of this specific eviction, which is currently the subject of an ongoing federal court injunction that was secured last year, but also to secure substantive and significant policy concessions from the government to ensure that it's not just one family who receive, you know, basic rule of law and natural justice, but but all families going forward. So we end this situation where hundreds of families each year are kicked out onto the streets without even understanding why that's happening to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is about precedent setting um, to make uh, a change within the system. Um, I think there are a bunch of things that you've touched on that are really important. One of them is the importance of considering, um, you know, the Western Australian government, but all state and territory governments as landlords of the housing properties that they manage, which means that, you know, renters' rights and tenancy rights are such an important consideration in this fight. And I think um, there's a risk sometimes of thinking about renters' rights as only referring to uh, the kind of things we need to push for in private rental tenancies uh, when actually, uh, you know, public and community housing uh, tenancies and um, uh, state-owned and managed Indigenous housing as well as a, as a different sort of form of tenancy all have renters' rights concerns and need for significant reforms to make sure that racially discriminatory um, decisions you know, really can't be made at all. Um, and I can imagine that for the Aboriginal families you've been working alongside, uh, you know, you mentioned that so many children have been made homeless as a part of this. Uh, and I can only imagine that this means then further interactions with child protective services, with youth detention, with the prison system, all these kinds of things that um, are intersections of colonial violence that kind of come together and relate really intrinsically to housing um, and its lack of consideration as a human right in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the impacts that flow on from these evictions are lifelong and serious and extremely acute. And I think you've identified several key ones. Um, I mean, I would even go so far as to say that premature death of not just sort of um, elderly people. And I'll take, I'll refer back to the example of the gentleman I alluded to earlier, who was the first case that I handled several years ago through the magistrate's court, evicted for no reason at all and kicked onto the street by the government. Um, he was dead within a year. He, he, that like the, the, there was a direct causal link from that eviction to the premature death of this elderly Noongar man, um, which he was well aware of. He told me at the time, he said, you know, if I lose this house, I'm not, I'm not going to last. I'm going to go and sleep in the park and I won't be around for long. And it turned out that was completely, I mean, of course, completely accurate. He, he knew better than anyone what the consequences would be. But also the other end of the spectrum, there was a story, um, 
in the local paper, the West Australian, several weeks ago about the deaths of multiple babies whose parents had been homeless um, and who'd been sort of brought into this world while their parents had been homeless on the streets, both First Nations families who we'd worked with over a number of years um, who'd sustained evictions recently. Um, and the consequence of those evictions was that the parents became homeless and when the babies were born um, with with medical conditions in some cases, um, they didn't have the supports, the stability in place to care for those kids and um, the babies passed away. I mean, so it's it's extremely acute and that's probably, you know, the most acute example. But as, as you've identified, um, you know, the consequences for the youth justice system, there is a recognised ongoing youth justice crisis in this state with a youth detention centre that's in a perpetual state of rolling crisis. Um, I mean, the kids of the families we deal with make up a significant proportion of the kids who are in and out of that sole youth detention centre, yeah. of which usually about 90% of the occupants are First Nations kids. Um, and I mean, the implications for education, for health, for mental health, and most acutely, I think, and most shockingly, is the very direct connection and relationship between evictions to homelessness and child removals. Now, the same department, the WA Department of Communities, handles both child protection and family support and public housing. And yet there seems to be this complete incapacity to appreciate that if you evict a family of kids onto the street, quite often the sort of short or medium or long-term consequence of that is that those parents are deemed no longer able to take care of their children and that housing is one of the basic preconditions of retaining their children or of reunification with their kids, without which they simply won't have the capacity to provide the security and stability those kids need to be reunified with their families. And the end result is that you get another generation of stolen generations. Yeah. And so the basic stability that housing provides is, I think, underappreciated. It is both a basic human right and, you know, a, a, a fundamental human need. So at a basic public policy level, let alone one of kind of compassion and um, and cultural understanding, I think the government's just got to shift its position here. And instead of kind of... Um, allowing the situation to deteriorate further, they can step in now and make some really simple, really basic changes, one of which is to tell people the grounds for which they're seeking to terminate a tenancy and evict them onto the streets and allow them to actually resolve it. I'm wondering what the respective roles are of the Western Australian and Commonwealth governments in delivering on the concerns of the campaign to stop evicting families, because I know that Western Australia has also, um, or at least the Minister for uh, Housing, has made overtures towards the importance of a housing first model, um, which centres housing before every other social support service is wrapped around it. And yet we see these evictions of Aboriginal families into homelessness. So what are government's responsibilities in, in arresting this trend and making sure that uh, these evictions don't happen? Well, I mean, I think at a sort of, at a basic policy level, part of the issue here is obviously one of housing supply as kind of like a, a, a bottleneck or a stranglehold when there aren't enough houses to go around specifically when there isn't enough public housing to go around for the, you know, the desperate families who need it. You have a situation where the department seems to kind of have an equation in their mind where they go, oh, well, we have far more families needing housing than we have housing for the families. And thus, if we have, you know, tenancies that we deem to be problem tenancies, the simplest way is just to, you know, rather than seeking to support those tenancies 
and support the people and the families involved to actually resolve any issues that may be arising. They decide, well, we've got, you know, 18,000 other families queuing out the door. We might as well just give these guys the flick and get in someone who maybe, you know, will 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 be better from our perspective, whatever arbitrary kind of criteria they're using to determine that. Um, so I think, you know, both state and Commonwealth governments can at a fundamental level intervene in this issue by making far greater provision of public housing. The WA government is making some steps to address an ongoing critical shortfall of public housing here. And obviously the Commonwealth government's kind of responded recently um, to inject some more investment into, into public housing supply. Um, I think fundamentally the issue of um, housing policy as it pertains to evictions, however, resides squarely at the state level. Um, it's the WA Residential Tenancies Act that governs and underpins all the um, legal and policy frameworks for evicting families from their homes. Um, it's at that level that the government can, you know, intervene either by re-legislating to, to kind of close certain loopholes and to tighten up provisions to ensure there is um, rigorous enforcement of rule of law and that, you know, claims made against tenancies need to be tested before they progress to a to a final position where families can face homelessness as a result. And alternatively, they can just institute better policy and opt not to use certain provisions that still enable evictions for no reason at all. There's a colossal power imbalance here, um, just, to, just to close off. I mean, the First Nations families we work with are terrified of the government with very good reason for generation after generation after generation. They have seen their culture, their community, their families destroyed by the same government that's now still kicking them onto the streets with their children. Um, and so I think providing families with cultural support, culturally appropriate support to resolve issues that may arise at home and to allow them at the very least an understanding of the reasons that, you know, that the issues may have arisen um, is, is basic and fundamental. And that's essentially all the campaign is really calling for. And that was a conversation with housing justice campaigner Jesse Noakes, who caught up with me earlier this week to discuss the campaign to stop the Western Australian government's Department of Communities from evicting Aboriginal families from public housing into homelessness. While public housing is frequently referred to as the benchmark for secure rental tenancy in Australia, the Stop Evicting Families campaign has highlighted how state and territory governments can act to choose to end public housing tenancies with no reason, um, process for challenge or sufficient notice to tenants. And these decisions are disproportionately made about Aboriginal families in Western Australia's public housing system. So there, Jesse spoke about the dire consequences for families as well as their fight to end arbitrary evictions. And you can find out more about the campaign by heading to stopevictingfamilies.org and keep an eye out for news later today about one family's class action racial discrimination complaint about their eviction notice from public housing, which is currently under investigation by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Now we'll jump straight into our next interview. Do you want to um, yeah. introduce? Okay, so this week um, we have uh, the Treasure Go Go Australian Short Film Festival um, is is on uh, at the Nova Cinema in Carlton, and that's been founded by Dick Dale. And so we're going to have a conversation with him. Morning, Dick. Hey, 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 going, Spike? Good, Man. good. Welcome to Three CR Morning Breakfast Thursday Breakfast. Hello, and I'm still in Adelaide, but. I haven't missed my plane yet, so okay. <laughs> I'm catching a plane later on today, and I'll be in Melbourne this afternoon for the opening night of Monster Fest tonight, and um, they're playing some kind of horror movie on tonight. I, 
My bright, it's only 7.30 in Adelaide in the morning here, so I'm a night person. But yeah. uh, it's going to be 10 days of horror, exploitation, documentaries, retro. But the most important one of them all is Trasharama Agogo, the nastiest film, festival, film program in the land for 26 years. And it's on this Saturday at the Carlton Nova at 6.30. And I've got another program of hilarious... They're mostly hilarious... Uh, Horror-orientated films uh, from all over the world. Uh, I've got films from Spain, from Netherlands, the Ireland, uh, the USA. I've got an Aussie one in there, a New Zealand one, a uh, Canadian one. And uh, it's good, bad and ugly, yeah. basically. <laughs> so, t- man, so what is the appeal, do you think, of this sort of genre of film? And, well, and actually, appeal. describe it for people, like, you know, nicely. Describe it to people. So tell, tell people. Nicely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, uh, basically, I, 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 I screened this. I started making Trash of Armor um, in 1997 um, as a way to show the sort of films that I liked, short films I liked. It's a short film festival, yeah. short film program, as the sort of films that I liked making, which was sort of, Bad taste comedy or a bit of co- mainly comedy. I can't help myself. I can't be serious to save my life. Uh, but with like a, a horror sort of edge, or I guess you can call it horror. Like I, I love practical effects, you know, like blood and guts. You got people nodding in the monsters. studio, Dick. <laughs> Sorry? You got this people nodding in the studio that love the same. Ah, but they love it. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, come along, please. Like I'm telling you, it is funny. Uh, so I started to make the, the, the I put that, uh, I, I won, a, I, I came second in the country on a graveyard shifty film competition of my uh, movie, The Beast from Bomb Beach, which was made on a $500 Centrelink loan. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it came second in the country. And I went, oh, wow. Uh, there was no second prize. Uh, the first prize was to go to US and meet Roger Corman. It was a oh, Foxtel yeah. television show of horror movies. But I didn't win, but uh, I came second. They gave me $1,000, and I upgraded. I had a keg party for all the cast and crew, and I upgraded my camera from VHS to Video 8. But at the same time, I went, you know what? I've been going to lots of film festivals, and I always have, like, one good movie that I like, like someone's made in their backyard or some kind of horror movie or something like that. Why don't we just have a film program where it's all good movies yeah. <laughs> or bad movies or whatever? So yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I don't know, it's just... Why people like it, I don't. I can't say. I don't know. Maybe it's a bit exciting for some people. Maybe people. But they're not scary. I, I can tell you right now that, that I, I do not. It's, it'd be very hard to scare people in a short film for a start. But uh, I, I believe. But um, I just go for the, the comedy. You know, like uh, like Monty Python. You know, Monty Python. Just uh, as an example. Uh, Monty Python in the Holy Grail when the, the knight's getting all his arms cut off. Oh, it's only a flash wound. You know, blood spurting out everywhere. I mean, that's hilarious. The, the early movies of Peter Jackson, I don't know, people, some people yes. probably don't even realise that before he was making Hobbit movies and, and Lord of the Rings, he, he actually was making, like, these um, uh, zombie movies and stuff with, with all sorts of blood and guts flying across the screen, and they're absolutely hilarious. Yeah. So that's the stuff that, that has inspired me. Really, but uh, I haven't got any of my short films playing in this festival. These are, uh, I'm just doing it for everyone else, and um, I don't do it for money. I just do it because I love it, and it's part of Monster Fest, um, which is a whole 10 days of, of great stuff. So I'll be down for this weekend anyway, um, hanging out and watching movies and uh, drinking some beers and uh, and stuff. I do have a couple of Treasure Armour T-shirts 
for sale. Uh, only a couple of female ones. But that's okay. Like, I'm like, not selling my wares here. But, um, yeah, I've even got a clown exploitation film this year. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so give us a bit of, so tell us a bit about the history of Monster Fest. Uh, Monster Fest, I think it started about 2012. And I was uh, working at this, uh, uh, this, this, Box dive in Adelaide called the Squatters Arms Hotel, and I I, I was doing Treasure Armor, and I, noticed, and I did, stopped doing it for one year because it was just too hard. I was I was booking all these bands at this club, and I was working behind the bar, uh, going slowly insane. We all were, and then Monster Fest rang up, and the, and the founder, one of the co-founders of it, apart from Grant Hardy, was Neil Foley, rang me up and said, Dick. Um, he was interested in getting Treasure Armor down there, and he interested in getting my contacts. But what thing on? Sorry, I'm losing track here. They had a competition. Okay. So I, I was at the pub. I was just doing this rock and roll stuff uh, in a bar. And they had a competition, make a short movie that you'd want to see at your funeral. Anyway, I made this movie, <laughs> this short one-minute movie of me in the graveyard getting ripped ripped apart by um, zombie um, lesbians. And then they ate me and ripped me apart while they made out of each other, just to put it in sort of nicely. Anyway, it yeah. won. It won the competition in, in Australia, and then they gave me... I had a VIP pass to come down to Monster Fest, and I went down there, and Neil Foley was a fan of Treasure Armour and asked me, um, you know, what happened to it? And I said, oh, it's too hard, man. And they said, no, no, come on, we want it back. We'll, we'll help you. And so... And I met Elvira that year. I met Bill oh, Mosley wow. from Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was fantastic. And then they rejuvenated... Me again, and the pub closed the following year, and I and I got Trash Arama going again. But Monster Fest has been going since then, and now Trash and since roundabout then Trash Arama has been like a, a staple every year tradition. Um, they have other another short pro- program, a couple of other short programs on there, but Trash Arama is the nastiest. So it's not nasty. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's it's one that the goriest usually, I think. How, um, how, how difficult yeah. is it to make a, an independent film in Australia? It, it's very hard. Um, uh, your listeners probably don't know. I, I, I made, uh, I finished making a film last year called Rib Spreader, which was my first feature film. Yeah. It took me around about nine years from completion to wow. writing it and everything and raising the money on the Kickstarter campaign. $24,000 I raised. Um, and it's got puppets in it, it's got miniatures in it, lots of practical effects, it's got cameos in it, from Rat Scabies from The Damned is in it, uh, Chad Morgan, the king of country and westerns in it, <laughs> Fred Negro from A Spit On Your Gravy, Spencer P. Jones, the late great Spencer P. Jones is in it, um, Chantel Contori, Osplay Taste Star, got all these cameos, Lawrence Harvey from The Human Centipede Part 2, some people probably don't want to see that, but yeah. he's in it. Anyway, I, I just did everything I could to make this film. So it, it, it was very, very, very hard without funding. And even then, when you want to go screen your film after that, once again, if you're not studio-backed, it's really, really, really hard to uh, to get into to, to festivals and uh, unless you know people, um, as I found out. I mean, like, I won audience... My film uh, won the Audience Favourite Award at the uh, Adelaide Film Festival. Yeah. Big film festival. Uh, but... They just did not see me coming, and considering half of Adelaide is in it, uh, about 500 people turned up on opening night, and then everyone voted, and I won that, and I won Golden Monster uh, Best Picture last year at Monster Fest. 
Wow. So, and my, my film has miniatures in it. It's got puppets in it. I, did I say this? In my opinion, yeah, yeah. Myself? I can't remember. But so, just... do you, what, are you, do you, have you got some recognition from overseas as well? No, no, no. It's been uh, rejected in oh. 30 countries, basically. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I got an honourable mention um, at the Video Nasties Genre Festival in um, in London. They didn't play it, but oh. uh, they're playing the trailer. But then I didn't feel so bad about it. I thought, what? You're not playing it? At the video Nazis, it's a splatterpunk video Nazi. Well, it'll be perfect. But then I noticed their festival only goes for like only only goes for like one night for four hours, oh. and they've got about two or three movies something, and I just didn't fit. But it doesn't matter. I'm planning on going over to Europe next year, hopefully with uh, Andrew Leavold and Fred Negro. Uh, we'll pub the movie, oh, wow. um, and we might tour both our films uh, over there. Let's see how we go. So where can people find – so where is Trashorama, the festival, going to be a go-go? Okay, Trashorama. So it goes for about 90 minutes. Uh, That'll be at the Carlton Nova um, Cinema uh, at 6.30 on Saturday night. Yeah. Uh, My movie, Rib Spreader, you can look that up. There's a trailer on on YouTube. Um, There's plenty of things up. It's a splatterpunk video nasty. It's even got its own Facebook page. That will be coming out on Blu-ray in uh, for a start in around about December. Uh, put out through Umbrella, um, Umbrella Entertainment, and Monster Fest presents. So, and it's got plenty of special features on there, making of it because the making of Rib Spreader really is is a pretty incredible story. So I've made a. Uh, I made a little featurette on there with lots of behind-the-scenes footage and stuff of the crazy stuff that we did. But there is also a documentary uh, floating around whenever that's finished from Closer Productions. Uh, they're a big company here in Adelaide, and they got funded by Screen Australia to make a documentary called Video Nasty, The Making of Rib Spreader, and that follows uh, my journey uh, and my colleagues insane journey to make this mad 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 movie and i haven't even got time to tell you about all that okay. but keep an eye out for that right. uh that's not that's not finished yet mate but uh even thank, the film is. thank you so much for your time this morning you've been a right dick cheers thank you so much thank and, you very much Mike. have a great day see you in melbourne bye-bye Oh, what an absolute treat. That yeah. was Dick Dale talking about <laughs> that was awesome. the Trasharama go Short Film Festival, uh, which caters to the low-budget, no-budget end of the movie market and focuses on genre fi- films, horror and sci-fi, under 15 minutes in length. And again, that's going to be at Cinema Nova this weekend. We'll have all the information in our show notes, including information about how to watch his film, Rip Spreader. Now, Spike, do you want to introduce the last segment we've got on? Okay, so... Um I've been, I guess, uh, I've been talking to a lot of people, um, doing some interviews of people uh, that have been involved in activism um, over the last few weeks, and so I thought I'd um, have speak to someone from Blockade, and they got back to me last week. So this is this is a part of a the first part of a three part conversation with James, who's an activist from Blockade Australia, and today we're talking about um, why. The, the blockade's mission, why he got involved with the organisation, the role that's the, the commitment to social and environmental justice plays in blockade's work, and the importance of direct action. Morning, James, and welcome to welcome to Thursday Breakfast at Three CR, and thank you for making the time to speak to us about the work and goals of Blockade Australia and some of the challenge, challenges that present themselves when working to achieve environmental and social justice. So, welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Tell us a bit about Block 8 Australia, its mission, and why you decided to join an environmental activist organisation. So I guess Block 8 Australia is a collection of people across this continent that have decided to kind of unite in a mission to create a credible opposition to Australia in a fight for climate climate justice um, alongside um, economic and social and community and kind of, yeah, different, different sectors of the environmental movement. I guess our mission is to, yeah, ultimately provide a platform where people can take direct action, take it in a meaningful way, um, and, yeah, kind of get in the way and materially stop some of the destruction that um, is so inherent in um, Australia's operations and yeah i guess that that's been done through various mobilizations um as you might know some of the mobilizations um yeah they they take place at centers of um, economic importance um and so one of those i guess the first mobilization that blockade australia did was at the newcastle coal port um, and I guess that is a place that is the largest coal port in the world. And so Australia's kind of ongoing um, project and like the, the ongoing expansion and exploitation that um, it consists of relies so heavily on these types of um, fossil fuel and kind of extraction um, projects. So there was a mobilisation there for um, 11 days um, in November 2000. 21 and yeah i guess the idea to like um have you know a sustained period of direct action um you know getting um in the way consistently and choosing those targets and kind of going like offensively towards them um rather than just kind of being at at a forest blockade or something out of mine and kind of trying to defend it all the time you know making the system defend itself from um you know a an opposition or kind of an, um, a direct action that's like trying to kind of, yeah, stop, stop the ongoing um, destruction. And so that was like 11 days um, and, yeah, had a huge kind of impact on the coal industry there. A lot of the politicians and a lot of the billionaires had a little, you know, they were quite upset, um, got on the media and stuff and, yeah, um, weren't very happy. So, um, yeah, that was the first mobilisation. Uh, there was another one in, at the Port of Botany um, for five days. Um, recently, there was a mobilisation that was coordinated across three of the largest ports on the East Coast. And that was, um, yeah, three to five days. I was, it was five days um, across the three ports. So, you know, every single day, um, direct action um, along some of those, like, pinch points and bottlenecks of those crucial kind of um, economic um kind of um yeah roles that they play and yeah really trying to kind of just stop stop some of the destruction um rather than just like asking or um you know doing awareness campaigns or something it's it's really about getting in the way and taking that action to kind of make make that um, bit of difference that hopefully can provide an example of, of what could really um be you know in the future like so i guess yeah a call to action for the people to take um a stance in that way and get in the way of, 
of what's happening before it's kind of too late. Man, that's it's really inspirational stuff. And when you hear reports of those sort of actions, um, it's it's yeah, it's really good to see, and it's inspira- yeah, it's inspirational to the rest of us in the community that that are, uh, are hearing about it. I guess I'm also interested in what motivates you to get involved. Uh, yeah, I went to university and did a degree in environmental um, science, and I majored in sustainability and ecology. Um, and I guess, yeah, I was always kind of just like wondering when the point was where there, where there was going to be some sort of like pathway towards, you know, doing something that actually allowed the protection of the environment or something like, you know, the reason I decided to study um, in that field. But I just kept on towards the end of the degree, getting pushed towards kind of entering the corporate world and like really the, the, the kind of boundaries that like restrict that workforce don't really allow any change to happen and in some sense it kind of felt like I was just you know working to make it more legitimate for the system to keep kind of doing what it, what it was doing um, and at that point I just um, yeah you know started thinking um, that that obviously was not the, an avenue that promoted any kind of change or benefit to my future um, and yeah looked around um, um, yeah there was lots of things happening um, and I found that, yeah, getting on the front line and um, being able to kind of, yeah, share that story and make some sort of real difference and kind of build the community and the culture that you actually, that actually may be sustainable in the future. And, like, you know, working on that every day um, was actually the most effective kind of thing that, that would enable, yeah, me to have some sort of safety or security into the future. Thank you for that, mate. Thanks, thanks for giving us a bit of a personal insight into what motivates someone to commit their lives to, to environmental and social justice. How big a role is the commitment to social environmental justice? How big of that is, how much of a motivator is that? It's huge. I mean, yeah, when you think about environmental justice and what that really entails, um, it is a, you know, a, a society where you don't have these kind of like um, overarching powers um, and systems of domination um, that, you know, apart from, like, dominating the environment, um, dominating, like, you know, peoples and, um, um, I guess, I guess like, the economy as well and, like, wealth inequality um, and housing inequality and things like that, like, they all play roles in reaching environmental justice. Um, and, you know, you can't have... Um, kind of a, a, a environmentally just world where some people um, are exploiting like all kind of kind of um, responsible for up to 70% of the you know same amount of emissions as 70 the lowest 70% of people um, you know because it's it's not really about um, everyone kind of yeah trying to do their best every day or something when there's just um, a huge kind of yeah unjust world in, in a lot of those other fields. It's, it's all really in, intrinsically linked, like the, the kind of military complex as well. Um, and it's like it's a global problem, right? So you're not going to be able to like solve something on this continent because the way that we are acting affects the rest of the population and they are just going to like the side effects there in turn come back and reflect on what happens here in Australia. So, yeah, you really have to think about it in, in an in immense kind of global way.
So you, would you say that if all these things are connected, like the military-industrial complex, social inequality, env environmental injustice, they're all connected? Totally, totally, 100%. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, systemic racism is, is in there as well, obviously, and sexism and um, things like that. Like, the, not, not being able to, like, have um, kind of equal expression from everyone plays a role in how we act and dominate um, the country and the continent and the whole globe and yeah it's it's all really um connected what what type of tactics do you feel are most effective in with the contemporary general public yeah well what do you feel is most effective in getting um blockade australia's message across with with contemporary general public and why um well i guess like primarily um yeah kind of a, the output um through direct action is really, I guess, you know, effective in being able to materially stop some of these um, projects and stuff um, and, and machines and kind of, yeah, sites where uh, the destruction does happen. But, like, yeah, getting people to kind of do that and um, being able to empower people to go and create whatever else kind of they think is the, the most effective way to to create change is, like, yeah, secondary for sure. Um, and, like, I guess we, sharing, I guess we put a lot of emphasis into sharing kind of those skills and upskilling people. Um, so, like, yeah, holding workshops and um, being able to um, build and kind of live a different kind of culture that, that does, like, then create, like, an alternative to the current Australian one. Um, and, yeah, I guess kind of constantly um, building that uh, network of people that can kind of, you know, rely and be upskilled and um, be ready to take action is, yeah, really effective and important for the, for the kind of, for the movement, I guess. And, yeah, I think that, I think that without, um, like, actually doing those things and taking action, um, yeah, you know, your campaign um, kind of becomes just another, yeah, speaking group or something that people may, yeah, understand your politics or something, but don't, can't see how those politics um, that might, yeah, have, be, be, be acted out, I guess. And I think Blockade Australia really has emphasis on taking action as well as kind of um, doing those upskilling things and stuff, which is definitely a motiv major motivator for um, for this group, I think. What that points to is that blockade, and yeah, a blockade is it's, it's more than about um, a, a political action. It's about it's about creating lives that are more environmentally just and living in a more environment environmentally just way. Would you say that that's a, that's accurate? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's about, like, you know, being able to kind of um, provide an example um, of a culture that can survive and that is more, um, yeah, just, I guess, and sustainable. Um, because, yeah, it's quite hard to imagine what, you know, how, how, what other ways of living could be because you don't really get the ability to kind of um, learn and experience that in school, obviously. And, um yeah, without being able to kind of see that, um, it's hard to get people to 
yeah, to consider, um, you know, the real change that is necessary. So definitely building that culture um, through sharing skills and just um, trying to get everyone to be ready and able to take political action if they want to. I remember when um, there were some people from Blockade on one on one of the bridges in town here in Melbourne. They were blocking the traffic and mm-hmm. they were doing a great job of raising awareness of 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 the of the issue. One of the things, one of the a lot of the responses I was getting from my colleagues at work, it, they didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing, and they mm-hmm. they saw it more as an inconvenience. And I guess it's a really difficult job to educate the public, the public, because people are so they're so trapped in their daily lives and trying to you know like make ends meet, I guess. And so it's a really difficult job. Totally. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the messaging as well um, and kind of like the politics behind um, Blockade Australia, I guess, and that, yeah, what's been put out is that, yeah, the Australian kind of, you know, colony came here 250 years ago as a militarised resource extraction site and hasn't stopped plundering and destroying this continent um, and it needs to be stopped, I guess, you know, it needs to be halted, um, it needs to be gotten in the way of, um, and so like having that, that messaging and also doing it at the same time, yeah, is, I guess, pretty powerful, but really hard to kind of, I mean, yeah, it's been like, what, two or three years um, since the first blockade, but yeah, the media is definitely catching on um, and saying a lot of those kind of phrases, um, so yeah, it takes a bit of time and a lot of um, actions, And but yeah, it's, it's possible, um, and I guess, yeah, it's not, not worth stopping for any time soon, I don't think. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.